Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a father, that you revealed yourself to us as a parent, as an Abba, as a daddy, that the God Jesus came to reveal is so much better than the God that humanity thought they knew. And God, I ask that you would show all of us how to manifest the Father's love wherever we go, that we be a people who, who bless and nurture and protect in the lives of those around us, but especially in the lives of children. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so if you guys are new, we are in a series. Uh, we've been in a series for a few weeks now called Salt and Light. And uh, normally as a church, uh, we, te- we teach the books of the Bible expositionally, which means we, um, we, we, we draw out the meaning of a text and we go verse by verse through different books of the Bible. Like recently we taught through the book of Romans for about a year. Uh, but every once in a while we do a thematic or topical series uh, like this one. And so this series is, is rooted in uh, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus compares the church, his spiritual family, to salt and to light. And what we've talked about is, is that salt and light impact the things they come in contact with in, in significant ways. Um, in the same way, uh, and in the same way as we live out our faith and, and, and we walk with Jesus in community, uh, it should impact the places we occupy and, and, and the, the people we encounter. The pl- pl- places and spaces we occupy and the people we encounter. And so based on Jesus' teaching, we've been a- uh, really answering two questions uh, throughout this series. Um, what does it mean that the church is salt and light? And that was the first three weeks actually unpacking what does it mean that this is our identity? And two, how can we practically live out our identity as salt and light? So, so number one, what does it mean for our identity to be salt and light as a community? But then two, um, how practical can we do that? And so in the last few weeks, we've been going through the, the practical how questions. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife Jackie taught on hospitality and what it could look like to welcome people into our lives into our worlds, in a world where some people are alone. A couple weeks back, I taught on provocative living or, or what it looks like to be the kind of person that lives such a life that people ask questions about you and the hope you have and, and what you were about. And, and two weeks ago, Royce Nicholas taught on our work or our vocation and how we can use our career and work weeks to bless those around us as spaces we're, we're in often. And then last week, Maria taught on partnering with the Holy Spirit to bless people through prayer and prophecy without being weird. And and now most of what we've covered in this series so far is pretty standard in a series on evangelism. If you're going to do a topical series on evangelism, a lot of this stuff's pretty standard. Um, You know, if you're doing evangelism, mission, cultural impact. But today what I want to look at is a topic that's not normally a part of a series like this. And it's the topic of parenting. Uh, Parenting is often relegated to like the family ministry wing of the church. But actually, who we raise children up to be has a massive impact on the world around us. As a matter of fact, if you're a parent or you're a caregiver to a child, your greatest impact on society will often be the people who you gave the most time and energy to, and oftentimes it's the kids we've been entrusted with. And so there is so much time and so many experience to invest in the kids around us. By the way, before we start this morning, I want to say this. Uh, if you are here and you don't have biological children— uh, you're, you're, you're single, or you are married without kids, or you have struggled to conceive, um, or you're just not sure if parenting's for you, or, or whatever it is right now, what I want to say is, is that today's message still applies to you. Because as you're going to see, kids need a broad church family full of inspiring, loving caregivers. It's not just mom and dad. The New Testament family was not the American nuclear family of mom, dad, two and a half kids, and all that stuff. It was more like a tribe of people 
who cared for one another and blessed one another and, and, uh, and supported one another. But often in the church, here's what I want to say, though. Here's why I think this feels out of place for the series. Often in the church, we've neglected children in favor of more important work. We've uh, neglected children in favor of more important work. Um, even people who would say that they're committed to being salt and light often do this. It's a tragic story. Uh, in, in 1950, uh, there's a man named Bob Pierce, and he founded what would become World Vision. Uh, it's the world's largest Christian relief and development agency. Uh, they take care of a, about 100 million people in poverty around the world. Um, uh, he was passionate for Jesus and for a world without hunger or disease. Uh, Bob Pierce began humbly helping children orphaned by the Korean War. And uh, he would do outreaches, and he would feed people. And, uh, and, and everything he did kept growing and growing, and he had kind of like an unstoppable vision. He had this, all this energy for his work, and he dreamed the impossible. And he kind of um, did everything to make it happen. And uh, books and magazine cover stories were written about him. His friend said he's a man restless to love people and win souls. Uh, I've never met a person with greater compassion. Uh, he's a true Christian Samaritan who literally laid down his life for the needy little people of the world. Bob often prayed, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. That zeal drove him to the ends of the earth, marked by a seemingly inexhaustible passion to meet spiritual and human needs wherever he saw them. So he had a couple of prayers he would pray. One prayer was, um, break my heart for what's br what breaks yours, which sounds good, and it is good. Uh, two, another prayer he prayed was, was uh, like, use me all the way, God. like burn me out. I'd rather burn out than rust out is what he would say. This guy loved to do stuff and do stuff and do stuff. Rather go out in an explosion than kind of slowly rust to death, not doing, making a difference with my life. But the third prayer you would often pray is a troubling prayer to me as a pastor and as a dad. His third prayer was he had three children, and he traveled about 10 months of the year without his kids. And his third prayer was, as I care for the little lambs around the world, Father, will you care for my little lambs at home? And if you know anything uh, about his story, um, this had disastrous consequences for his family. As one family friend stated politely, Bob's wife, Lorraine, knew deprivation of a different kind than to those whom her husband was ministering. The stark reality is that he had all but abandoned his own family. He consistently put opportunities for expanded ministry and greater impact ahead of his wife and children. For example, when one of his daughters phoned him on an overseas trip to say she needed him to come home, he declined not understanding her desperate need. His wife, who was with him, pleaded with him to return with her. They were in Indonesia at the time. Instead, he chose to fly on to Vietnam by himself. And when Miss Pierce arrived home, she was shocked to discover their daughter recovering from an attempt to take her life. I just needed to feel Daddy's arms around me, she explained, adding, I knew he wouldn't come. Alerted to their daughter's emotional battle, the Pierces tried to get her help, but their belated efforts failed. Two years later, she would take her own life. Bob's relationship with his wife also deteriorated over time. At one point, years passed when they did not even speak. His relationships with his two remaining children were equally strained. Although God gave the family a night of reconciliation before his death, Bob Pierce lived many of the last years of his life alienated from everyone in his immediate family. Close quote. Now, this story might seem extreme 
because maybe you haven't founded a, an international NGO uh, or this uh, massive international ministry or whatever it is, but it's well documented that as a society, we've got a ton of kids who are work orphans. Heard of work widows? There's, there's work orphans. Uh, since the Industrial Revolution, we've been pushing uh, dads and now moms too out into the workforce. Uh, a workforce that, that doesn't include much of the home. Often back in the day, you had a farm or you had a trade as a family or you had a restaurant or a business and, and the family made a living together and the kids were a part of that and the parents were in their kids' lives. And then we've got things like the Industrial Revolution. We've got the car where you now commute away from where you live to do work, which is something that I, th I think might be demonic. I don't get too into it. I'm not saying you're demonic, but I'm just saying I don't think humans are designed that way. I think we're supposed to be rooted with a people in a place. Um, I think about uh, communities of color and the ways that mass incarceration is impacted, uh, especially dads not being able to be there as they ought to be. Uh, I think about uh, the push. Uh, so so we, we've gotten dads out of the house commuting. And, and what's happened the last 30 years is so many dads have kind of abandoned their families for work. And the moms have been stuck raising a family on their own. And what the feminist movement has often done in response to that is instead of saying, let's call the dads home more, they go, hey, let's get the moms out as often. By the way, I'm pro-women working full-time. I'm just saying everyone's like, the big goal is to get out of the house. Uh, adults, what they want to do is get away from their own kids and do something fulfilling. And so uh, I think we've got uh, work widows, we've got work orphans, and that's well established. You had divorce, and you've got two, uh, yeah, two people who are working a ton. And I think with millennials, we don't just have work orphans. Uh, we now have self-care orphans. Uh, parents who view parenting more as a responsibility and less as a privilege. And they do everything they can to avoid in any meaningful way sacrificing for their kids. There's a clear economic component to the current abortion debate. And clearly women have often not been supported as they ought to be. And men haven't been held accountable enough to take responsibility for their children. But we can't pretend that a big part of that debate isn't people viewing children primarily as a burden they're getting in the way of real, meaningful work or experiences. And so sometimes we can even view our children, and this is where it gets it's wild, sometimes we can even view our children as getting in the way of ministry, of being salt and light. Uh, I've mentioned this before, and, and this is uh, laid out pretty clearly in the Bob Pierce story. I think one of the, the biggest problems with the ev evangelical church last 50, 60 years, one of them is uh, the ends justify the means. So I'm alleviating poverty and serving people. I can bail on my kids. Like, th this is hundreds of thousands of kids. This is three kids. But what Bob missed was that his presence is outsized in terms of its impact with these three kids than it is over here. Also, uh, my hunches, I, I, I don't know him. I'm not his therapist. I promise you there's more going on in his heart and, and, a, and a need to be away from home. That's, that's really, really important. But sometimes we can even view, our, again, our kids as getting in the way. I, I, like, I could make disciples if I just had more time. But these kids, you know? Uh, I confess, I've had these thoughts over the years. When we started as a church, two children were here. Uh, we had Clive, Aaron Rodgers, uh, tech, direct, uh, tech team member, handsome, amazing kid. Smart, brilliant, funnies, all that, man. And a bag of chips, AMPM, you know, too much good stuff. Get chips there. There was Clive and there was Amelia, Tom Logue's daughter, um, who we low-key are hoping 
get married someday. Anyways, um, Hoping distance makes the heart go fonder. But, but, but in the early days, it was a bunch of early to mid-20-somethings. Most of them were single or married without children. And now um, we have a lot of people in their late 20s and early 30s. And as people have gotten married, um, we, we've gone from two children to around 45 children. And over time, those kids have added challenges and limitations to our communities. Uh, if your GC's ever been impacted by child care, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for, for example, we built this church, Jack and I, on the back of cocktail parties at our house. Uh, we'd have people over for late night dinner and drinks. We'd disciple them, talk to people about Jesus. Uh, I like to think we had a Nicodemus ministry, like under the cover of nights, breaking bread, talking about the things of God. Marriage count, we're doing all that, man, just late at our bar. We didn't have a dining room table. We just had that bar. I feel like we, we did everything we could to be hospitable people in that little house. And, um, and, and, and once you have kids, though, you run in a sleep deficit. Going to bed at midnight or one or two. I think Nicole and Tom at our house one time until three in the morning. <laughs> it's not great, especially when they're going to be up a few times throughout the night. I know Takeda's like, know what I'm talking about. They're here with a, with a, with a new one. Going to be up at 5 a.m. the next day. Also, kids, like any needy humans, wear us out. They force us to sacrifice our time, our money, our energy, our emotions to care for them, which means on paper you have less for everyone else including serving at church or in the community, even good things. And I remember thinking for a while, how are we going to grow the church if we don't have as many high-capacity volunteers and outreach ministries? How are we going to have a real sense of community with all these kids if people will have less time for one another? And um, God's been, been changing my heart over the years. I've talked quite a bit the last couple of months about God's really been giving me the gift of going, our church has limitations. We're a certain size. We've got a certain amount of kids. We've got a certain amount of money. We're coming out of a pandemic, and our reality is our reality. And uh, to push everyone to max out and burn out, again, the ends don't justify the means. We might be a smaller church for a while. Again, I'm telling you, coming into Memorial Day weekend, I was like, oh, my gosh. It's going to be 15 people there. And there's more than that, which is great. But my point is, is learning to go, hey, that's actually okay if that's who we have right now. We're doing our best. We don't have a, max ex we don't have a mass exodus of people leaving uh, for one reason, and it's because they hate the church. Often it's a myriad, a variety of reasons that aren't connected at all, and so it's a thing to grieve, but also it's a thing to accept that there's these limitations. And one of the limitations has been the amount of kids we have now in the church. And I realized that I needed to grieve the changes children were bringing to our church, and it wasn't the kids that were the problem. I want to be clear on that. It was my inability to accept the change and limitations that a new season of life brought for many people to our church. Um, this really crystallized for me when I had a conversation with Tom Logue, who plants Restore Temecula. Um, their church plant launched team dynamics could not have been more different. Uh, where Uptown had two children and 46 adults, they had around 45 children and 20 adults, day one. They had so many children that our family of churches provided kids ministry workers for their pre-launch phase uh, when they were meeting Sunday evenings, if you guys remember that, because their adults weren't, they weren't going to have any adults in the gathering uh, to catch vision for what the church was, was trying to become. And I remember Tom said for a while he viewed the kids as a challenge. I remember uh, Tim Keller, he planted a church in Manhattan in the late 80s, and he, he used to talk about how when they planted, their church was entirely made up of young professionals. And he goes, um, uh, we had no children the first three years or something like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so easy. And Tom thought the same thing. He's like, I have the anti-Keller church. But, but he said um, God gave him eyes to see kids as a blessing and an opportunity. And here's what I mean. We plant churches to help people who aren't following Jesus learn to follow Jesus. 
one of the biggest challenges in planting is figuring out how you're going to reach people in your context who aren't following Jesus. How are you going to evangelize? How are you going to expose them and invite them into the church? And Tom realized most church planters would kill to have 45 non-Christians at their services every week. And here he is complaining about it. Uh, as a family of churches, um, we've often employed a missional principle known as the person of peace principle. It's based on Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 10. And it's the idea that to be the most effective in terms of evangelism, you want to focus on people who are open, not people who are closed off. In other words, don't spend a bunch of time talking to people who want to argue all day. Focus on people who are genuinely, uh, genuinely curious. Uh, God will work on and prepare the hearts of those who aren't ready to hear the gospel. You're arguing, probably won't get the job done. Our job is to focus in on those who seem to be interested and open and invest where there seems to be a return and to give people the space they need if they don't want, you know, the gospel. And so hallmarks of a person of peace, right? There's someone who's interested and open. Hallmarks of a person of peace, give you a couple of them. They know you're a Christian and they like you. Two, they ask spiritual questions and want your perspective. Three, they welcome you into their space and accept invitations into your space. And four, they share what they hear you say with others. Now, here's what you need to know. If you have younger children uh, in your life, you have people of peace. And often when you're faithful, when they're little, they'll remain people of peace as they get older or even become followers of Jesus when they're older. I mean, think about it. Your kids know you're a Christian. They like you. If you're a cool aunt to your uncle, they like you. Uh, they never, ever, ever stop asking questions. Like the White House press secretary. Just boom, 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 boom. They often take on your perspectives and beliefs, right? Like Calvin, um, he's a raging Celtics fan. Now, I like to think the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. <laughs> but I think it was just like, I, I'm, that's what I'm into. He's into it. We're, we're getting into it together. C Clive read Bill Russell's uh, autobiography. Like, we, 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 we massage in the Celtics' love. They welcome you into their space and accept invitations into your space. You live with them or, or, or you're around them often. They constantly want time with you. I, I see Olivia every day and pretty much every day. She's like, Dad, can you hang out with me? Can you play with me? Can you hang out with me in the ladies' lounge? She's like her little underneath her bed with some pillows. And as parents who have overheard, right, as parents who have had their child overheard them say a swear word, they will definitely repeat what they have heard you say to others. We had a conversation with our kid once. You don't have to share all our business with everyone. Not talking like hypocrisy, like the mailman would come. He's like, you know, uh, 9532 is a lock on our, uh, you know. He's like, it's my dad's pin number. You're like, stick it easy. <laughs> I believe that children want their, pa their parents and their caregivers, their family, to be their biggest influences. By the way, this includes you who don't have biological children. They do view you as aunties and uncles, like they really do. And your influence matters a lot. Your approval matters a lot. Your encouragement matters a lot. One time, uh, I remember Veronica uh, babysat our, our boys, Veronica and Melina, and, uh, and they were kind of wild, and they had a big conflict, and Veronica worked them through the conflict. She, she MFT 30 minutes, sat down with them, and, uh, and they, they apologized to each other, and they made it right. And, like, that's as valuable as if we're doing it. Does that make sense? Like, man, your guys' contributions, those of you who don't have kids, you have no idea how big the contributions are. But man, because it's family still. If, if we function as a family and the system's a family, they're going to pick up the family and the family love and the family values. What's modeled to them, what's said to them. Um, 
I remember uh, uh, com uh, comedian Neil Brennan. He had a comedy special. It's kind of a unique comedy special because uh, he had um, he had a section of the show where he talked about deep stuff. That's what he called it. So he talked about like depression and uh, feeling like a poser as a celebrity. And he had a third one where he talked about his bad relationship with his dad. And he described his father. Uh, he said, "My dad came from the uh, this is a quote. My uh, my dad came from the I did my best generation." Which Neil, and Neil describes that as, I used to get drunk and beat you, but I did my best. And Neil said, that's what, <laughs> um, he was always so confused. He think to himself, that was your best. Like the way you treat us, that was your best. And, and he talked about how um, his father, had, for a lot of his life, had rejected him or physically abused him. And, and how at the end of his dad's life, he called him to his bedside. His dad called him to his bedside. And as he lay dying, you know, he, he goes, hey, I'd like you to meet with me. And Neil goes, man, this could be a big moment of reconciliation. It could be a moment of healing. And his dad asked him to come to the bedside just to tell him he had written him out of the will. And Neil said, you know what's crazy? After all of the, I'm sure he used some colorful language, after all of the crap he put me through, I still wanted his approval. I still wanted relationship. And I still wanted to assume that we could reconcile. This is the power family have in the life, have, has in the life, lives of kids. And it's for better or for worse, the power to bless or curse or to wound or heal. Most people who step into counseling will find that most of what they need to deal with are lies, narratives, and assumptions that they carry from their family of origin, the parents and caregivers who shaped their lives. They've got these lies and just narratives that are now disrupting their lives leading to all kinds of dysfunctional relational patterns, habitual sins, and a lot of shame. Psychologist Margot Main, in her insightful book, Father Hunger, she writes, all children long for a close, loving relationship with their fathers. They are born with an innate drive to connect with them. Children literally yearn for this connection. When this normal craving is satisfied, children are likely to grow up feeling confident, secure, strong, and good enough for the moment. Often, however, this yearning is not acknowledged and the need for a bond with the father grows, causing self-doubt, pain, anxiety, and depression. Father hunger is a deep, persistent desire for emotional connection with the father that is experienced by all children. Like physical hunger, the more unsatisfied the hunger is, the more it grows. Adults who have not found a way to relate to their fathers or resolve their feelings of loss with their fathers may continue to suffer this hunger indefinitely. They bring their longing to new relationships when they become spouses or friends or parents. In this way, father hunger is passed down through the generations. Now, I know this quote's about fathers, but research says that it applies to both parents. It's just that fathers tend to be around less statistically than mothers. Don't hear fathers are more important. She, she just has a lot of data because fathers often, uh, unfortunately, aren't around enough. But guys, the impact we can have is so huge. I watched Jackie's dad um, earn his master's degree on Friday. He walked, and he's in his 60s. Now, that's a really cool thing. For me, what was cooler, though, was um, Jackie's grandpa and, uh, um, and her grandma, her nanny, they were in the, the back, and they're in their 90s. And I watched, um, I watched her dad Cabot come over, and he had done the thing, and he rolled through. And um, I watched her grandpa Bishop get up. Uh, he's 95. He popped right up. And he said, I'm so proud of you. And I watched her dad, like, beam, man. Like, he looked happier than when he didn't, you know, like, it still mattered to him. 
And so we have this amazing opportunity to partner with God the Holy Spirit to teach kids how to follow Jesus in meaningful ways. In ways that have drastic impacts on society in the future as our children become leaders and con contributors to society. Which is why I felt it was so important to talk about this today. So I've got three points. They're honestly pretty quick. <laughs> what an intro. What an intro. Number one. These are pretty quick. Number one, this is a big plug, by the way, for this like tremendous spiritual formation and parenting class Jack's going to be doing, all right? Number one, kids need their parents' influence. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that may, it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. By the way, uh, that, that, that harkens back to Exodus when God gives the, the Ten Commandments. And the reason it comes with a promise is he's saying, um, later on in life when I'm not around, remember what I taught you, and it'll go well with you. Because every, every, anyone who's been around kids knows they're kind of dumb early, right? They make bad decisions. Uh, they are proud. They are arrogant. They are um, not informed. They are ignorant. Uh, they run headlong into danger, all that good stuff. Um, your, your parents teach you to not do that stuff anymore. And if you Keep doing what they taught you to go well in the land. It says, fathers, don't stir up an anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's a calling for parents. Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 7 says, this is the command, the statutes, and ordinances. The Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the Lord, in the land you are about to enter and possess. Moses says, do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands. I am giving you your son and your grandson and so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. And again, we learned weeks ago from Sarah Lewis that this passage in Deuteronomy is called the Shema. Love the Lord your God, you know, with all your heart, strength, all that stuff. Uh, but then it says, verse 7, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. And I would say Sarah's um, idea, uh, she taught, it's not her idea, it's, it's, you know, missions agencies have taught it for years, but the idea of Shema statements, the idea of saying, I'm a, I'm a believer in God, so I'm just sharing my life with you, that's a brilliant missional exercise. But, but the, if you're a parent, the majority of those should happen with your kids. They're with you as you're living your life, and so they're hearing you talk about your life with God and really... Um, and by the way, I think some people worry about, like, I don't want to force my faith on my kids or whatever. Uh, you have to understand nothing's neutral from a messaging standpoint. So to not force it on them is to allow someone else to fill that in with a worldview and philosophy. No kids choose. Does that make sense? Um, and so, uh, and by the way, often if you live out your faith naturally, kids will ask you questions. A mentor of mine, Chris Vinon, he used to always say, I never told my kids to read their Bibles said, what I did is I read my Bible every morning and they saw me and every single one of them asked me eventually, can you teach me to read the Bible? Why do you read the Bible? And so I just think uh, kids need our influence uh, often. Number two, um, kids need more than their parents' influence. Kids need more than their parents' influence. And I know I've mentioned this already. Um, it's not just parents that cultivate who a kid becomes. I'm looking at all of you who are here who don't have 
biological kids. Your impact is huge. It could be even bigger than you know. Like some of you guys even step back because you don't want to be awkward or weird or whatever. Um, your impact's valuable. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes this. Says, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son. Now here's what you need to know. Timothy's not his son, biologically. This is a spiritual son in a culture where your biological dad was like everything. Matter of fact, throughout the Old Testament, think about it. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, often it was son of your dad's name. That was like your, uh, your um, I'm blanking on the term, but it was like your, uh, your surname, essentially. But um, yeah, sorry, I, I forgot what I was trying to say. Uh, your surname, but, but it's how you identify, how you were identified. Who your biological dad was, was a big deal. And Paul steps into that and goes, I'm your dad. Most scholars believe Timothy did not have a dad that was present. We're not sure in the details on that. It seems like he was absent, though. Verse 2 says, To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There's this idea, um, there's an idea that we see kind of laid out in the New Testament, an idea of reparenting. Uh, this idea of uh, men and women, godly men and women, teaching people things they didn't get from their biological parents for one reason or another. The church is the family of God. We're relearning how to live in the family of God. No one's family is perfect. We're all unlearning something. Some of us have great aspects handed to us by our families that look like the kingdom and other things that aren't. Some of us have more things that aren't, what the, whatever it is, um, but we're all learning how to live in God's family in a healthy way. That's the New Testament narrative of discipleship. So some of us, we, we do, we need reparenting at times. We need people um, to have conversations with us that maybe our parents didn't have. We need people to, to encourage us with beautiful, affirming statements that maybe we never received as kids. We need people to teach us lessons. All that stuff's on the table in this parenting conversation as well. Verse 3 says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear, uh, clear conscience as night and day. I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. I am persuaded now lives in you also. Again, in this text, we see a couple things. We see that his mom's an important figure, but it's not just his mom. It's his grandma. So we've got blood family that's not parents, and we've got spiritual family that's not parents helping parents these kids. Uh, I think there's some, I think something Catholics get right, the idea of godparents. Uh, the idea that we can take some responsibility and provide some care for the children in our midst that aren't our biological family. Does that make sense? Um, and uh, and that, that is a good idea. Again, whether or not it should be called godparents, should you have the ceremony, all that stuff, whatever. But, but the conceptually, the heart behind that is beautiful. One of the uh, pain points in my life is I am cut off relationally from my sister. I don't understand it. I didn't choose it. I'm confused by it. I'm perplexed by it. And the, the thing that bums me out even more is my kids are cut off from her by, by default. But one of the greatest joys in my life has been the different women who function like sisters. And my kids have more aunties than they can keep up with. Who want to bless them and love them and spend time with them and pray for them feed them and laugh with them and uh, film weird videos on an iPad with Clive. Uh, wear weird costumes and 
on and on it goes. My kids have been benefited tremendously from the investment of other safe, godly people. Um, I didn't grow up with any adults who I, I had context for their vocation and how it impacted and blessed other people. I love that my, kid, my kids have multiple therapists who babysit them. They have engineers. They, ha they have all these, uh, you know, they have all these amazing people doing big things, blessing people that they can look up to, that are safe. Um, dude, uh, Jimmy in the back, he taught all three of my kids to swim. It hurts, but it's beautiful. I'm terrible at swimming. They caught my swimming. It's bad, dude. It's bad. I want them to all, I want, the, I want Clive to take the finances class with Royce. I'm going to give him some basic principles. It's not going to be as good as what Royce could give him. Julia and Sarah and countless others, they made videos on my kids' birthdays, encouraging them about what they love about them. Uh, Maria taught Clive to make chai, like straight up street, chaiwala, Indian style. He makes it from scratch. It's like, you know, I don't even know how to do breaking cinnamon. I don't know. Um, went to a bougie coffee shop one time, and he's like, I'll get a chai. The guy's like, yeah, this, they, this is chai syrup. It's not even real chai. It's like, bro, it's $6. <laughs> it's like, it's garbage. I can make it better myself. I was like, dude, you've been hanging out with Paul Fam. <laughs> make it yourself. <laughs> not, the, not the garbage, just I can make it myself. You say that a lot. Yeah. It's true, too. It's true, too, for the record. Maria's giving them a global perspective of the church. Every time Grant Michelle come, global perspective of the church. We have friends who live in Tokyo. They've come to hang out with their kids multiple times with their daughter and their sons. Global perspective of the church. They have cousins who are Mexican who live in TJ. They came up for uh, Jackie's grandfather's party. Again, global perspective of the church is all these different family pieces that matter. And then number three, my last point, uh, it's the most, uh, yeah, last point. Uh, kids need gospel truth proclaimed and demonstrated. Kids need gospel truth proclaimed and demonstrated. Again, an amazing book called Discipline That Connects by Jim and Lynn Jackson. It's on the spiritual emotional development of kids, and it's the curriculum we'll be using for our spiritual formation and children class that Jackie will be teaching. Please sign up on the Restored app now. Um, subscribe below. Um, and uh, they, they basically say that parenting comes down to reinforcing four key truths. Four key truths. First, first truth is you are safe. Second truth is you are loved. Third truth is you are called and capable. Fourth truth is you are responsible for your actions. Honestly, as a pastor, that's mostly what I'm trying to get in the minds of disciples in our church. These are big things. These are all truths that prepare people for the gospel and are experienced through the gospel. And they can be communicated verbally and demonstrated experientially. First one is you are safe. Um, one, uh, one of my uh, kids has an anxiety disorder, and it means the part of his brain that does fight, flight, freeze goes off when it doesn't need to. And one of the things I learned about that is when the amygdala is firing, your prefrontal cortex where you learn stuff, it's basically shut off. And so what I learned is that when you are scared, you can't learn and receive very well. We don't make good decisions when we're scared. And so as parents or as caregivers, one of the things we can do as aunties and uncles, we can let kids know that they're safe with us. This is why abuse is horrific and needs to always be exposed and why we need to, to, to go to lengths to protect our kids, which is another conversation um, we're having. That being said, the gift of safety is essential. The other night I was with Olivia and we were in our backyard. Our, for some reason, our backyard, it's, ju it's just at night, but um, like possums just show up. And they're a bad vibe. We had a cocktail party for my birthday last week, and it was just, they just walked. There was like two of them. Uh, and I was like, oh, those guys are bouncers. It's fine. 
right? But I remember I was walking, and I had Olivia on my shoulders, and we've been doing bonfires. We had a little bonfire thing in the back on some of our nights, our family nights, and so we'll hang out back there. Kids will dance. Uh, they'll, they'll pretend they don't want to dance, but they all dance. Uh, we do s'mores. We have little, you know, combos all that stuff. And uh, and uh, Liv was like sad, and so I picked her up, had her on my shoulders. I was like dancing with her on my shoulders, and she was like, "Dad, there could be a possum." And I just had to say, I said, I said, love, when you're with dad, you're what? She says, safe. Said, We've talked about that so many times. Um, there have been moments that were really scary. And almost every time um, with the kids, they would run. We'd, we'd hug them. We'd hold them. We'd say, hey, you're safe right now. By the way, um, sheltering kids, we're, we're supposed to protect our kids. Sheltering kids gets a bad rap. Um, we shouldn't shelter our kids from people who are different, from ideas who are di- that are different. We shouldn't shelter our kids from the consequences of their decisions, and we shouldn't shelter them from awkward conversations about things like sex in a fallen world. However, we can and should shelter them from danger, especially when they're not big enough to take care of it themselves. On this topic, author Brett Hansen writes, excuse me, writes, our culture is polluted. We know that. And we know kids are the most vulnerable to the pollution. If my kids have asthma, you can bet I'm not going to pump deadly exhaust directly into their faces. I've had discussions with dad who let their kids watch entire sex scenes in movies, and I get a response along the lines of, but I saw stuff like that when I was younger, and I turned out okay. But did you? Are you entirely sure you're okay? I wouldn't say I am. I think we're all messed up for a lot of reasons. I once talked to a 10-year-old boy who was in tears as he told me he wished he could unsee the things he'd seen online. Before the advent of smartphones, an eighth grade boy told me he was often left home alone and was addicted to porn. He asked his parents to take his computer away or somehow protect him from it. They wouldn't do it. It's rare that your kid will actually ask you to shelter them, but they still want it. They rarely say, don't let me watch this or don't let me have that, especially when other kids get to watch this and have that, but they're not the parents of your kids. You are. You have to make some tough calls, like whether your kid gets a smartphone. The default answer is, of course, But given the troubling connection of smartphones and the spike in teen depression and suicide, the the default answer is tragic. A very wise Christian therapist friend of mine put it another way. After observing his own kids and the young people he works with in his practice, he said the correct answer to the question, when should I get my child a smartphone, is whenever you want their childhood to end. Whenever you want their childhood to end. Uh, We want, again, it's not bad to protect your kids. And again, emotional safety, spiritual safety, physical safety. Two, uh, you're loved. Uh, You want to tell them you love them a lot with your words. Uh, Pay attention to them. Spend time with them. Uh, We hug them. uh, With our kids, we try try to hug them constantly. We try to celebrate them. My wife's phenomenal. uh, phenomenal. Uh, Our birthday mornings are like Christmas. There's a banner, happy birthday with presents, and we have like a little breakfast. And they come down, and everyone has to get up early and celebrate them. uh, And they're into it, and they all buy presents uh, for their siblings. Um, we aff- and then we, uh, that night at dinner, we affirm them restored style. We like, all have them say something they like. Calvin, you know, he, he struggles with seriousness, say a little joke, but eventually he'll say something pretty meaningful. And they're practicing looking people in the eyes and saying, here's what I love about you. I want to honor you. Um, y- y- you want to um, reinforce the love of, uh, love of Jesus by sharing the gospel with them all the time. Every time you offer them for forgiveness or offer reconciliation when they disobey. Um, Point out that you love them. Point out things you love about them that aren't tied to their performance. They're just tied to who they are. By the way, uh, with love, you explicitly and implicitly communicate messages about love to kids. Uh, For example, if you're always busy with other stuff, you're implicitly saying you're not important enough to pay attention to. 
You didn't say that. That I promise you, they will make meaning like that. Um, uh, if you only tell you you love them when they perform really well in sports or in school, you're not saying, I only love you when you perform well, and people only love you when you perform well, but that's a reasonable message for a young kid to take. Does that make sense? Um, and so uh, you really want to instill in their hearts that they're loved. And here's the thing. If they know they're loved, it connects to the third truth. You are called and capable. Because here's the thing. Um, when you know you're loved and secure no matter what, you, start, you, you don't have the same fear of failure other people have. Because you know your identity is not on the line. You can open a business or try a new thing or, or go to school or ask that person, whatever it is. Like you can try the, the, the new thing. And you can, you can do audacious, amazing things, not as an attempt to validate yourself, but to bless people in the way Royce talked about. Or the work of your life, you're working from love, not for love. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Because you know they're called and capable, that they're gifted in unique ways. We get a chance to celebrate who they are, not who we want them to be. God created you for a purpose. God gave you a unique personality with unique gifts and contributions to meet the world's needs, which leads into the fourth truth. You're responsible for your actions. Again, we're called to protect them from danger, but not to protect them from consequences for their actions. We don't need any more helicopter parents. I don't know how the teachers and parents are feeling, but I don't think we need any more helicopter parents or uh, kind of steamroll parents. How we learn responsibility and build character is by experiencing consequences when we do the wrong thing. Um, it's just so important. Plus, it sets you up to encounter the gospel. You're accountable to a God, a holy God. But also, he loves you. Again, these things go together. So in terms of salt and light, as we close, I want to say this. I'm sorry for the length of this message. I never set my timer, and I'm really sorry. But guys, I think this is so important to tap into. If we just did this with 40, the 45 children we currently have in our church, and we didn't have another adult come to Christ in the next 10 years, I'm not saying I want that. Let's just say that that's what happened. If we did this with the 45 kids we have in our church, we taught and embodied these gospel truths to them. If we had 45 kids who believed they were loved deeply and didn't need to go find love out there because they have received love in here already, the world would be different. If we had kids who believed they were called and capable of doing great things with their lives, whatever, whatever their family or career uh, looked like, they would know it can be great because I'm involved. And people who believe that they were responsible for their actions and were working for justice, our church would be unreal salt and light in the future. They'd all be better than us, frankly. All of them. Some reflection questions. Uh, some of these are for parents, some of these for all of us. Uh, for, for parents, number one, do you need to grieve the limitations that come with parenting and accept God's invitation to influence your children? I think some of us, again, because we didn't get what we needed when we were kids, we're like, when am I going to get? It's like, dude, you, you got to get that in God. Keep, you know, do what you need to do, get help, get counseling, talk to people, uh, get mentors. But, but man, it's, it is time to, to give them something, and it's time to, to grow up in that way. Number two, do you need to ask God for a bigger heart for kids? Um, this could be whether or not you have kids. Number three, do you need help to better demonstrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to kids, yours or others? And then this third question, this could be an issue of competency or training. Like I mentioned the class, again, I'd highly recommend. It could also be an issue of, um, like, you're like, I, 
I have some really close, I don't have kids, but I have really close friends that I love their kids and I'd love to be more invested in their kids' lives. And I just, I just don't know if I'm allowed to, or I don't know, you know, uh, and actually you can even like have those conversations. Like it might seem kind of weird. Um, but again, if we're a family, I think it's normal to just ask, Hey, you know, and by the way, not one-on-one or whatever, just like, I want to be integrated with your family. You may decide at some point one-on-one's cool. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, one adult takes kids away. You guys, you guys get what I'm saying. Okay. You guys get what I'm saying. Uh, just integrate. Hey, I'd love to come over for meals or I'd love to, um, have you guys over for meals or I'd love to, um, get some time with your kids. Um, uh, you can ask that and you'd be surprised. Um, one of the, um, one of just the cooler moments of my life or just cool moment of church family. Um, I was on a trip and Jackie was real tired and, um, Will Mitchell, uh, and Janelle took our kids, all three kids, to the movies and um kids at the movies are a vibe uh they're a lot of work they're up and down uh they're like people with small bladders on airplanes like it's just a lot of up and down and complaining and uh food and, and they love there was their idea and they loved it and the kids loved it and so man you have these little moments to just bless kids in in the life of this church uh, i would love it if all the kids in our church grew up going i had so many people who believed in me and loved me i had so many safe amazing adults um because, man, if kids are walking in this stuff, like, it really would be such salt and light in ways, more ways than we can imagine. So, um, yeah, let's just take a sec. If you guys would close your eyes, consider these questions. Pray through how God might want you to respond to this. Father, I want to just ask that for everyone in this room, wherever we're at, if we're here and we, um, we feel like we have our kid, we're overwhelmed by our kids' needs, or, or maybe we're heartbroken that we've struggled to conceive, we're frustrated. Or maybe we're, um, we're single and we're wondering, you know, I'd love to be more involved with these kids, um, but I'm just not sure how. Um, God, I just ask that you would um, give, us a manif- give us a revelation, a fresh revelation of the love of the Father that we all share. That there's a Father who loves us, who sees us, who pays attention to us who knows us, who provides for us, who cares for us, who moves towards us, who pursues us, who doesn't give up on us, who has a vision for us, who has dreams for us, who has a calling for us, that that Father is the Father that we received when Jesus died on our behalf. And so, Lord, would you make us people who manifest the Father's love as, as spiritual parents in the lives, godparents, whatever, in the lives, the, the kids in this church, the kids in our homes. Would you give us the courage to deal with our own issues that prevent us from being good parents, parents that can give these messages consistently? And God, I pray that the children in this church um, would be deeply affected in good and beautiful and true ways by the men and women in this church, the adults in this church, that, that kids would receive these messages, not just from their parents, but from the, the larger community all the time given a strong foundation for life. I'm loved even when I sin, even when I fail, even when I mess up, even when I do the wrong thing, I'm loved. I'm safe in God's presence. I'm safe in God's will. I'm called to great things. And so, Lord, would you you give us the kind of father heart that gives those gifts and those messages to your kids, the, the, the truly little kids right now, and the adults who feel like kids. In Jesus' name, amen.